Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and we will be reading verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer be of any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of the bulls and the goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are all offered according to the law. He then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to be in order to establish the second. And by that, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Thank you, worship team, for leading us and uh, Stacy for, for reading this morning. Uh, that is the passage we're going to be in. We're actually going to do verses 1 through 18 today. I wanted to start with just that first half of it. And uh, we're going to, before I pray to get into it, I wanted to uh, just highlight what uh, Kurt actually led us in prayer about, the uh, the Go and Tell weekend next weekend. Um, I just want to encourage you to avail yourselves of that if you, uh, as much as you can, is really what, what I wanted to say. I, I know it's a busy time of year. I've had several people tell me, oh, I'd love to be there, but we've got this thing we've already committed to or whatever else it is. Um, we're all about grace here. That's fine. I, like I say, I know it's a busy time of year, busy weekend. Uh, my, my word to you as a church is take advantage of as much as you can uh, when you're here. Um, this, is, this is something we identified about ourselves as a church, that we want to grow, that we need to grow in the area of, of, of evangelism, sharing our faith with other people. Uh, you might remember, those of you who've been here longer, remember we did a kind of a self-assessment process about a year and a half ago, and this was the biggest need we identified. Uh, and just in terms of, you know, passion for evangelism and letting other people know, telling, telling other people about Jesus. And so, you know, say, why are we doing this evangelism seminar? Well, that's why. That's the impetus for doing it. So uh, this is a growth area for me. It's a growth area for all of us, for us as a church. There's a few of you out there who are gifted and passionate about it. You probably already signed up. I know how you guys are. So, um, but again, I just, I, I encourage you to take advantage of it. If you can't be here Saturday, prioritize Sunday. Uh, if you don't usually come on, uh, come to a, a Sunday school hour, do next week. Come next Sunday because uh, next Sunday, next week we're, so I suppose I should say what we're doing. Uh, there'll be a, a workshop from nine to noon with Jim Halstead. Jim is a uh, pastor. He pastors for a bunch of years, three different churches. One of them was a free church and uh, has a real gifting for, for evangelism. And uh, he kind of transitioned from that. And now he leads this ministry, Go and Tell Ministries. And he's a, he's a great speaker, comes to us, highly recommended from several other district churches. I'm sure the content's going to be real good stuff. Uh, he's going to do a workshop uh, Saturday morning. We are asking people to sign up for that. Although if you forget to sign up, come anyway. Uh, we're just asking you to sign up to give us an idea of like refreshments and how many tables to set up and that sort of thing. But the sign up is at the Welcome booth area out there afterwards someone will be at that table 
But um, so that's Saturday morning, nine to noon, and then during the Sunday school hour, uh, he'll be sharing uh, uh, some stuff that's kind of a, a supplement to what he did Sunday morning, but or Saturday. But if you're not here Saturday, that's perfectly fine. It's a standalone piece in the Sunday school hour, and then he'll be preaching. I'll be here, but he'll be preaching on the Great Commission. So uh, avail yourself of what you can, and let the Lord speak to your heart, and uh, let's, all, let's all do that together. If you'd pray with me, please, uh, let's uh, pray for this passage as we come to it now. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for just uh, bringing us into worship this morning. It is a joy to, to gather as your people, to sing your praises, uh, to, to declare your worth, and it is just uh, what, a, what a great thing for us to be able to do. Uh, we would pray now that you'd open our hearts and our minds to understand this passage and to pull some threads together from the last few chapters and to see where it all fits. And I would just invite you to, 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 to speak through my frailty, Lord, to help us understand, and then in our understanding to help us to apply, to understand how this isn't just doctrine, how this is transformative and uh, changes us, changes uh, our community, changes the world. And so we thank you for that. And we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, a a friend of mine shared a story with me. It was about something that happened in Italy. And uh, it was a tragic story. It was a sad story. It took place in northern Italy, up in the Alps area of the country, the mountainous part of the country. And it, it involved a cable car, one of those cars that travels along on a cable, uh, a, a cable car that had an accident. There was an, a cable car accident. And apparently one of the, this thing was kind of way up along over this deep valley and, and the, the main cable, there's usually a few cables, but the main cable broke. It snapped. And it's, it would have been okay. It would have been jarring, but, but unfortunately the, uh, the emergency brake failed as well. And so this cable car, uh, basically plummeted down the remaining cables, kind of the guide cables that guide down those at at speed, and then they snapped and it plummeted to the ground and it smashed hundreds of feet below. There were 15 people in the car when this happened, and when rescuers finally reached the wreckage, they were sure that no one could have survived. Nobody could have survived that fall. And at first it seemed they were right. The scene was completely silent when they finally reached it. But as they began to sort through the wreckage, they they heard a whimpering. They heard a whimpering sound, and they they followed the noise, and they found a little boy, a little five-year-old boy in amongst all of the the crushed pieces. And he was injured. He was seriously injured, but but he was alive. He'd survived that awful fall, and and he got better, too. It it took a few months of of recuperation and, and some hospitalization, but a few months later, he was completely recovered. The reason the boy survived was really beautiful. The reason he made it was that his father shielded him. When rescuers found the boy, he he was actually still wrapped in his father's arms. It was the last thing this father did as this cable car was plunging to the ground. he, He wrapped his whole body around his son. The dad didn't make it. The dad didn't survive, but his son, his son did. This morning, we're going to talk about an even more beautiful sacrifice than the one I just told you about. And I can say that because we're going to talk about the better sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Over the last four weeks, we've been talking about the superior ministry of Jesus. That's really the theme of of Hebrews 7 through 10, which is what we've been in the last few weeks. Uh, Those four chapters, three and a half chapters, uh, focus on this idea that we've been hammering home that Jesus is worth any sacrifice. He's worth any sacrifice. He's worth it because the salvation he offers us, this is what the author is telling us, uh, the salvation Jesus offers is better for us in every way. 
And so we've been looking at things that are better. In, in chapter 7, we talked about the better priesthood of Jesus compared to the Old Testament priesthood. And then in chapter 8, we talked about the better covenant that Jesus inaugurated. And then in chapter 9, there were two things that were better. The first half of the chapter looked at uh, the better redemption, the better salvation we have in Jesus. And then in the second half of the chapter, and this was just last week, we, we looked at how Jesus can offer that better salvation because he's the better mediator. He's the one who brings us to God. Well, in this passage, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 10, uh, the author brings it all together by showing us that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the, that's how he does it. He offered, and, and the reason his sacrifice is better is that he offered himself. Right? Jesus offered himself, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Jesus is worth any sacrifice because he offered himself for us. He gave himself for us. Uh, so as I say, we're going to go through verses 1 through 18, and I want to basically break this into four sections, right? And a lot of this, we're, we're pulling threads together like I prayed, and so some of this will be familiar, a little bit of it's repetitive, I'll try not to belabor things that are repetitive, but we're kind of pulling all these threads together from chapter 7 through, through 10, and what we see here are four key concepts, four key concepts that the better sacrifice of Jesus helps us understand. We understand better these four things because of the better sacrifice of Jesus. So let's, let's look at the text. You'll see what I mean as we go along. Number one, the first key concept that his sacrifice helps us understand better uh, is the old covenant. Right? So we've been talking a lot about the old covenant. Here in chapter 10, it, it becomes very clear. The purpose of the old covenant becomes clear. And the purpose is to foreshadow the work of Jesus Christ. It looks ahead to the work of Jesus. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. So we'll take that paragraph first. I'm going to read it again. So he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, the old covenant ones, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the ultimate purpose, here's, here's what we, here's what, and we've hinted at this earlier, but, but now it comes right to the surface. The ultimate purpose of the old covenant was to look ahead. It foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the phrase good things to come refers to. It refers, it's not talking about heaven, right? In a different context, we'd be talking about heaven. But in this context, he's talking about the work of Jesus, right? So, so good things to come, that's the work of Jesus. The old covenant, he says, just looked ahead to what Jesus was going to do. That's why it had any good effect, right? You think about the old covenant, it, it, it wasn't useless. It had lots of good effect, right? If you and I had been Old Testament saints, it was, it was a blessed thing to us. And, and it, so it did help people. And, but, but the success it had came precisely because those people were looking ahead. They were looking forward by faith. To the work of Jesus Christ. Right? And that's actually why we're going we're gonna to spend three weeks on that in chapter 11. That's why it's so important. By faith, by faith, by faith, they were looking ahead. The old covenant worked because those people put their faith in God, and they didn't have words for it this way, but really they were putting their faith in Jesus. That, that's why it worked. 
which is also why at the same time it was ultimately ineffective, right? This, this tension we've talked about with the old covenant, it was ineffective because it wasn't, it wasn't the real thing, right? It was just the shadow, he tells us now in, in verse one. I've got a shadow up here, right? There it is. There's my shadow behind me, right? From these lights up here. Um, it's not the real thing. It's not me. My shadow can't pick anything up. It can't touch anything. It can't do anything. It, it, it just reflects. It points back to the thing that casts a shadow. That's, that's the idea here. Um, and so the, the old covenant wasn't dealing in realities. It was dealing in symbols. It was dealing uh, in, in a way that looked ahead, he says, uh, which is why he says it, it wasn't able to make perfect. And we, we talked about how that word uh, in this con, in, in biblical literature, basically, when you see that make perfect, a lot of times it doesn't mean make flawless, it means uh, make complete, which is how it should be understood here in Hebrews. There, was, there were verses earlier in the book where it was the same thing. And so when it says uh, it was not able to make perfect, what it's saying is it was not able to, to, to save completely. It was only able to save in this way that was uh, temporary, that looked ahead to something that was coming later on. And so you have this idea the sacrifices have to be repeated, right? Why, Why do they have to be repeated? Because they didn't work. They didn't work. They, they worked for a little bit, but then they had to be repeated again. Which explains verse 3 as you look at it in your Bible. You know, there was something the law could do really well, he tells us in verse 3. What the law did really well was remind us over and over and over that we're sinners. The law reminded us that we were sinners. The sacrifices of the law reminded us that we were sinners, that we are sinners. In, under the Old Covenant, every time they, uh, an Old Testament saint brought an animal to be sacrificed, he was supposed to stay there with the animal. I, I think the law even says they're supposed to place his hands on the animal's head as, as it's being slaughtered by the priest. Talk about a vivid reminder of the cost of sin. It's very, very vivid. And, and that's what verse 3 means. The, the sacrifices could remind people of their sins. They could illustrate the cost of sin. The cost of sin is death, Romans 3 tells us. But the Old Testament sacrifices could not remove the sin. They couldn't take it away. Why? Because they were a shadow. They just looked ahead. They looked forward to the work of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the Old Covenant is to foreshadow, to look ahead to the work of Jesus. Uh, that actually has a very important application for us, right? It's a very useful doctrine, actually. It may feel a little academic, but it's very useful. And the application is that it affects how we read the Old Testament. This first point, it, it helps, it affects how we read the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of us, let's, let's be honest with each other for a minute here. Well, I always try to be honest with you. Uh, a lot of us struggle with the Old Testament, because it's so long, right? That's one of the reasons we struggle with it. It's so long. If I hold up my Bible, um, this, you know, my left hand is holding the Old Testament. It's about 75% of the Bible. So a lot of us struggle with it because it's long, but we can handle long books, right? We can, we can do that, right? We read the Lord of the Rings or whatever you like to read that's long. You know, we can handle long books, but the real problem a lot of us have with the Old Testament is that so much of it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't seem to line up with the New Testament a lot of times. You know, why couldn't they eat pork? Right? I mean, it's so good. Why not? Right? Why can't they eat pork? What's wrong with mixing different fibers? Have you ever tried to read through Leviticus and you come to that one? Don't mix your fibers. Like, I mean, everything I wear is a blend. I'm sure of it. You know, why, why couldn't they mix fibers? Why, what's with all these ceremonies and sacrifices and the festivals and, and all of that stuff? What's it all about? If a lot of it, one of the reasons we struggle to read the Old Testament is a lot of it doesn't make sense to us. 
But this right here, these first four verses, and this basically this idea from Hebrews, it really gives us a tool for reading the Old Testament. Because when we read the Old Testament, one of the, the, the big tool we bring to it is that all of it, in some way or another, all of it looks forward to Jesus Christ. Now, some of it, it's, it's more clear than others. Sometimes it's more principles. But all of it, the stories, the, the psalms, the laws, the sacrifices, those ceremonies you read about, um, all of it ultimately looks ahead to Jesus Christ. So, so, so that's concept number one, that the better sacrifice of Jesus helps us better understand. It helps us understand that the purpose of the old covenant was to look ahead, to foreshadow the work of Christ. That's number one. Number two, uh, the second key concept is, uh, it helps us understand, is the incarnation. The sacrifice of Jesus helps us understand in a better way, in a clearer way, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of verses 5 through 10. And what these verses do for us is they show us two things about the incarnation. They show us that the purpose of the incarnation was so that Jesus could live a life of perfect obedience and then offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. Both of those are are fundamental purposes of of the incarnation that the sacrifice of Jesus helps us understand. That's verses 5 through 10. Let me me start reading this. I'm going to break this into two pieces. I'll start with verse 5. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... So the author is going to take an Old Testament quote, and he's going to say, Jesus said this, and Jesus is God. It's all God's word. Christ said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a word, excuse me, a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I'm going to stop there for now. So this word consequently or therefore, uh, it links us back to the previous paragraph to verses one through four. So the old covenant was passed, you know, looks, the old covenant had this function to look ahead to Jesus. So very logically, verse five says, here's what happens when he came, right? So, so verse five uh, says, therefore, when he came into the world, right? When he came into the world. So, so something happened when Jesus came into the world. I'm going to just stop there for just a second and point out the obvious. It's a little early to talk about Christmas, but he's talking about Christmas, right? Because that's when Jesus came into the world. We we celebrate his birth, his advent, his coming uh, at that that time of year. And that's what verse 5 is talking about. It's talking about the, the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the author says this. He brings it up when he came into the world. And then he links it to a passage, an Old Testament passage. And this does not surprise us at all. We've talked about how Hebrews does this all the time, right? Hebrews is always quoting the Old Testament. Here's another one. Uh, This quote, though, is a little bit unusual because this is the only place in the New Testament where this passage is quoted. So what he's quoting here is Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. That's what he quotes. And this is the only place where that passage is quoted. For comparison, uh, the most quoted Old Testament passage is Psalm 110, which is actually also quoted in today's passage, Psalm 110. And that one's quoted 24 times, 24 different times in the New Testament. So that's kind of a, a, a big deal, Psalm 110. Psalm 40, this is the only place it's ever quoted. Uh, when, when that one was originally written, I wasn't going to turn to it, but if you were to turn to it, you'd see it is a Psalm of David. Psalm 40 is a Psalm of David. 
Uh, and so they understood that Psalm 40 was about David. David was writing about himself and his own relationship with God in that psalm. But now the author of Hebrews says it's about Jesus too. We call that a messianic psalm, sometimes uh, because it looked ahead. It, it, it was a prophecy in some way or another about the, the ministry or the work of the Messiah. Sometimes they, un, the Israelites understood a passage to be a messianic prophecy. Sometimes they were surprised. I think this one's more like that. I don't know that there's a real history of this one being understood that way. But the author of Hebrews says that one was talking about Jesus too. And so what he, and what he does, the reason he does it is, is Psalm 40 talks about sacrifices and their place in worship. And the author grabs that, verses 6, 7, and 8, and he says that was about Jesus. That was about Jesus. And actually where he applies it is he applies it to the body of Jesus. He applies it very specifically to the body of Jesus. Let, let me show you why I say that. If you uh, look at your text, uh, if you look at the first three lines of that quote, so for you and me, it's, verse, it's the second half of verse 5, uh, it's, it's, it's verse 5, and then it's verse 6. That's the, the first three lines of the quote. Uh, line 1 and line 3 both focus on the Old Testament sacrifices. It's how God feels about the sacrifices, right? And, and that's line 1 and line 3. And how did God feel about the Old Testament sacrifices? Turns out he didn't like them. He didn't like them. Uh, verse 5, uh, he did not desire them, it says. Uh, and then verse 6, he took no pleasure in them. Not when they were done with an impure heart. You say, well, wait, weren't these his idea? Yes, they were his idea. But when the Israelites did them without sincerity, when they were just rote and ritualized, just going through the motions, and they weren't from, the, from a pure heart, but they were just doing it to try to earn their way with God, God said, don't bother. He wasn't interested in their human religion. He wasn't interested in it. That's not what he wanted. That's what line one and line three say. But then look at the line in the middle. And for you and me, it's the last line in verse five. The last line of verse five is a prophetic reference to the incarnation. That's what the author is telling us here. A body, a body you have prepared for me, the Messiah says. That, that, we, we have a name for that. We call it the incarnation. God, the Son, took on flesh. The second person of the eternally triune God became a human being. A body you've prepared for me. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17, He was made like His brothers. He was made like us in every respect except for the sin. He, he became one of us. He became one of us. And that, so, so here we put, put that in its context, that's the purpose of the incarnation, the author says. It's not the only purpose of the incarnation. There's other ones we talk about every December. But, but here, the purpose of the incarnation was a body you have prepared for me. For what? For sacrifice. Because that's the context, right? You don't like these sacrifices. You don't like these sacrifices. A body. You've prepared for me, the Messiah says. It's all about sacrifice. And then that's why the obedience part, that's why verse 7 is so, so important to understanding this quote, because you get the first part, you get the, uh, God, God's plan, the incarnation. Jesus is going to be born without sin. And then he says, I have come to do your will. So here's the Messiah's response to that. Verse 7, that's what I'm going to do. I have come to do your will, O God. And so what's he supposed to do with this body that's been prepared, this man, this God become flesh? He's going to live a life of perfect obedience. Your will have I come to do. And then he's going to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. 
verses 8 through 10, they just explain that. So I just, some, I just basically gave you verses 8 through 10. Um, we, we heard them before. I won't read them again. But basically, if you look at verses 8 through 10, when Jesus did that, right, when he lived that life of perfect obedience and then offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, boom, there we go. There's your new covenant. It actually says that, right? He did away. When he did that, he did away with the first covenant and he established the second one. There's our new covenant. He offered himself his perfect obedience. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And then the connection the text makes for us is this is how we're made holy. That's verse 10. The word, uh, he says, this is how we're sanctified. We're sanctified by his perfect sacrifice for us. Verse 10 says that God makes us holy through the offering of the body. And he repeats it, right? The offering of the body, to take us back to that word back in at the end of verse 5, the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He offered him own, his own body. Like I said, it's a, a little early, a little early for Christmas. But when we get there, that is one of the big things we're celebrating, right? We're celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus, not just because it's miraculous, and it is, right? We I'd love to emphasize that part every, every year when we get there. Uh, it is a miraculous, astonishing thing that God loved us that much. Uh, it still does. Uh, it really is. But it's not the only reason. It's also, it's also because his birth makes possible his perfect obedience. He can, he can perfectly obey God's will as a fully human being, just like we are, where we fail so miserably, and then offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. That's how we're saved. Joy to the world indeed. Right? Almost makes you want to break out the Christmas tree. Maybe not. It's a little early. <laughs> All right, that's number two. Uh, it helps us understand the incarnation. It puts the incarnation for us in a, in a broader context. Let's look at the third one. The third key concept uh, that Christ's sacrifice helps us understand better is the cross. It also helps us understand uh, the cross. Put some, some meat on these bones. Uh, and especially the purpose, specifically the purpose of the cross. That's verses 11 through 14. So like I said, we're going to continue through to verse 18. So right now I want to look at verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. And what these verses do is they show us the purpose of the cross is to achieve the finished work of salvation. So it's done. That, that's the idea in this, in this little paragraph. It, it, it is to, the purpose of the cross was to achieve once for all, the author's going to keep saying, the finished work of salvation. Uh, let, me, let me read those verses. We haven't, haven't, haven't read them yet, so let's hear them. Uh, it's verse 11 now. It says, And every priest, talking about old covenant priests, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So those verses, uh, they were, first of all, let's just note that they repeat something we've already talked about a lot in Hebrews. Uh, they repeat this idea that the old, old covenant sacrifices had to be repeated. They, they were repetition. They, they offered them repeatedly, it says. But the sacrifice of Jesus, and here's why he keeps saying that, he wants to emphasize what he's contrasting, the sacrifice of Jesus only needed to be done once, right? His was a once-for-all sacrifice, which is what you get uh, at the end of, of verse 10. It says he was offered once for all. 
Right? And the idea there is that's once for all time, which it actually says for us here, right? For, for verse, uh, verse 12, he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So when you see that once for all at the end of verse 10, that's not once for all people. This isn't kind of a, a cloaked universalism. This is once for all time is the idea. It didn't need to be repeated. The sacrifice of Jesus only needed to be done once. So, so that's, that's review. We've noted that a few times in the last three chapters. These verses do add something new, though. Verses 11 through 14 add something new, a new emphasis, and it's, the emphasis uh, is on this, on this idea of being finished. It's done. That's what verses 11 through 14 add. It's done. It's finished. And where you see this in the text is in the contrast between standing and sitting. That's the important piece here. That's the new piece. Uh, verse 11 says that the priests stood daily, right? They stand daily at their service. Every priest stands daily at his service. Um, there's a, it's interesting, a little interesting side note here with that. The, the way the author says it actually helps us date the book of Hebrews. I don't know, most people probably don't care too much about this, but there's a lot of people who always try to push New Testament books later than when they were actually written. Uh, but the author is talking about the temple as if it's still standing, which actually will date the writing of the book of Hebrews for us. Hebrews has to be written before 70 AD because the author says the temple's still going. He doesn't say they stood daily. He says they stand daily. The priests were, things were still happening in Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed in 70, and so this was written before that. So, so it's going on. Even as he writes this, it's going on, which makes it very vivid. But the more important thing, uh, really the reason he says it, he doesn't say that to help us date the book. He says it because he wants us to see that when someone is standing, he's still working. Right? When someone is standing, he's working. You're not resting when you stand. Right? I'm working right now. When the sermon's over, I'll go sit down. You'll know it's done because I go sit down. Right? When, you, when you're done, you sit down. Now, I know, I'm sure we could think of counterexamples. There must be some example where somebody's work, they rest while they stand. But, but in general, standing is working, sitting is resting. Right? And especially if you're a priest, which is really his, his main concern. Uh, the priests, if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see it. The priests never did their job sitting down. Their job involved standing. They were offering sacrifices, offering prayers, doing this, doing that. They were always standing. If you see, a ta- if you see passages where an Old Testament priest is sitting, he's not doing his job. Right? Something's missing if he's sitting. Think Eli in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. He shouldn't be sitting. He should be working. Uh, and, and so it's, it, they're standing because why? Because the work never, is never done. It, it just goes on and on and on. So they're standing. Now compare that to what we are told about Jesus. In verse 12, Jesus offered his sacrifice, and then he sat down. That's, that's huge. He sat down at the right hand of God. He isn't working anymore. There's not, why? Because there's no more work to do. That's the idea. It's finished. Everything that needed to be done for you and me to be saved has been done. What is he doing now? The author says he's waiting. He's waiting. That's actually verse 13. He's waiting. You know what he's waiting for? Same thing you and I are waiting for. He's waiting for the end of the age, right? That's that, there's your reference, by the way, to uh, Psalm 110. That it comes straight. That language comes straight from 110. Whenever, when his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. He's waiting for that. 
Now, he waits differently than us because he knows when it's going to be. You and I are like, I don't know when it's going to be. He knows exactly when it's going to be, but the reason the author says waiting is just to to show this idea that he's done. He doesn't have any more work to do. So Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. I think he's, he's still governing and sovereign over his world. But as far as what it took to save human beings who come to him by faith, it's all done. It's finished. And, and that's what, what this passage adds for us. And then what verse 14 does, verse 14 is where this becomes personal, because verse 14 links that, his finished work, to our lives. Because verse 14 links it to the ongoing process of growing in holiness. All right, so the ongoing sacrifices, do you remember that from verse 1? Verse 1 said the ongoing sacrifices could not make perfect. They could not bring us to completion. But verse 14 says that the single sacrifice of Jesus does. His sacrifice does exactly that. By the single offering of Jesus, of of himself, he has perfected for all time, it says. And it will use the same word. It uses the same word here in verse 14 that it used used back in verse 1. The old covenant couldn't make complete, but the new covenant in Jesus, his sacrifice, does make complete. And, and this really, I, I think, for if, if you're saved already, this is the best part right here. This is the best part. Because when we think about the, the work of the cross, it's not just our moment of conversion, right? And for some of us, maybe that was a year ago. Maybe that was a couple years ago. For some of us, maybe that was like 70 years ago or, or you know, a long time ago. And, and sometimes we talk as if the cross is only about that moment of conversion. But what the author says here in verse 14 is it's not just about the moment of conversion. It's about the whole process of growing in godliness. This is where it comes from. You know, that it's, it's sanctification, growing in godliness, learning to resist temptation. That is also a work of the cross. That is also uh, the power of the cross. We're being sanctified now by what Jesus did for us on the cross and not by our own efforts. And, so, and yeah, there's the whole side of we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We need to submit to Jesus. But, but he's the one who does it. He's the one who's cleansing us and empowering us to live for godliness. So that's the third one. The purpose of the cross is the finished work. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in the cross, the finished work of salvation. Finally, the fourth uh, key concept that his sacrifice helps us understand is the new covenant. So we circle back around now. We started with the old covenant. We circle back in this text to the new covenant because that's the focus of verses 15 through 18. And what this last part does for us, and we've talked about the new covenant. Like I said, you can see how we're pulling this. This, this, this passage is summary of this section that runs from 7 through the middle of 10, because there is a shift. When we come back in two weeks, we'll shift to a, a, the, kind of the final leg, as it were, of the book. But, but what this adds, this little paragraph adds, is that there are two things we find in the new covenant that the old covenant could never give us. There are two things in the New Covenant the Old Covenant could never offer, and it's interchange and lasting forgiveness. Interchange and lasting forgiveness. Uh, let's, let's look at that last paragraph, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And he says it's the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit inspires all Scripture. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, and now he's going to quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then the Holy Spirit adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
The Old Covenant only dealt with the outside. The Old Covenant only dealt with the outside. We've talked about this. It was all about, it was all symbols. It was external. It dealt with outside external things. In contrast, here's this paragraph, the New Covenant transforms the inside, right? That's the point of verse 16. You probably recognize those words. Uh, The author just quoted them in chapter 8, word for word. He just quoted them in chapter 8. It is a quotation from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, especially 33, 34, it is one of the great Old Testament prophecies about what Jesus was going to do, specifically about the new covenant, the new covenant that God was going to inaugurate in and through the Messiah. So that's that Jeremiah 31 verse. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33, God says the day is going to come. And when Jesus arrives, it has arrived. Uh, the day is going to come, God says 600 plus years earlier through Jeremiah, uh, when I will make a new covenant. I'll make a new covenant with my people. What's, what's going to happen in the new covenant? I'm going to put, and we talked about this in chapter 8, I'm going to put my law on their hearts, God says. I'm going uh, to write it on their minds. What's he saying? I'm going to change them on the inside. It's not going to to be just this external thing. Knowing God will no longer be a merely external experience. Now people will know me, God says, from within. We will know God on the inside, and he will transform us. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us will will transform us from the inside out. That's what he'll do. So you have this, this inner change, this inner transformation. The new covenant, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because he is the better sacrifice, is able to do this thing that the old covenant could never touch. It couldn't effect inner transformation. The other thing the new covenant achieves is lasting forgiveness. And you get that one in verses 17 and 18. Um, verse 17 is, is the next verse in Jeremiah 31. So if you had Jeremiah open, you'd see 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 34. Uh, God then says, and as another part of this new covenant, because I'm changing them on the inside and because of what my, my son is going to do, uh, we understand a new covenant perspective, uh, I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so what's he saying? He's saying the days of temporary forgiveness are over. We talked about how the old, under the old covenant, the, the forgiveness was only temporary, right? They had to make the sacrifices yearly, weekly. Some of them had to be done, right? There, there's no more of that. Verse 3 talks about yearly sacrifices. No more yearly sacrifices. Uh, verse 11 talks about standing daily in the temple. No more standing daily in the temple. Under the new covenant, sin will be dealt with once for all time. There's that once and for all idea again. I will remember their sins no more, God says. Not because he's not able to remember them. He could if he wanted to, but he chooses to put them out of mind, to remove them from our record. I will remember their sins no more. Which means you and I have hope. We have hope for genuine transformation. Let's apply both of these. Uh, we have hope for genuine change. We do not, you know, because we all have our struggles. Every one of us listening to this online and here in this room, we all have our different struggles and different areas where, where we're, we're still struggling to, to overcome this or that or whatever it is. But when we look, look at those things and we think of those things, we do not have to just grit our teeth and hope for the best. Oh boy, I hope I make it, right? No, we, we can ask God to help us. And he is helping us. I believe he helps us sometimes even when we forget to ask. He's he's working in us. We can ask God himself to change us on the inside. 
That doesn't mean he does it all at once. Right? We all know that all too well from our own experience. Sometimes he does. I've heard testimonies, maybe you have too. Sometimes the Lord will transform people instantly. He'll deliver people from addictions or he'll just, you know, I never, never swore again or that kind of thing. So sometimes he'll do that. Other times it's more of a process. How he chooses which is which, don't ask me. I don't know. That part is up to him. Uh, but but, but the, what I, I can't make any promises on timing, but what I can tell you is that he will do it. Because he says he will do it. The Lord will bring about genuine interchange in our lives because we're trusting in the better sacrifice. We're trusting in the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. And so we have hope. We have hope for genuine transformation. We're not stuck. It doesn't matter how bad it's been or what we've done. We're not stuck. We're not forever trapped in that mud. We have hope for genuine change. The other thing this means, picking up on the other pieces, is that we have peace, the peace of lasting forgiveness. There's such peace in that. We have the peace of lasting forgiveness. We do not have to carry the burden. This is probably hard for us to even imagine. We do not have to carry the burden of wondering whether the sacrifice worked. They did in the old covenant. They didn't know if it worked. Was that animal good enough? Was it free enough of blemishes? Did the priest do it right or did he screw it up somehow? We don't have to worry about that. They did, but we don't. No, our sins are forgiven. The, tech, the Bible assures us our sins are forgiven once for all time. Not because the priest did it right or we did it right. Well, the capital P priest did it right. Jesus did it right. right. That's the point. It has nothing to do with you and me, and it has everything to do with him. It's what he did for us in offering himself as the better sacrifice. And so we have peace. We have hope for true transformation, and we have the peace of lasting forgiveness. Last month, uh, the uh, island of Maui, you probably saw this in the news, uh, Maui was devastated, uh, and Hawaii was devastated by a series of wildfires. And the fires were uh, particularly bad. The one that made so much news was uh, this town called Lahaina. And I hope I'm saying it right, but Lahaina, Lahaina in, in Maui. Uh, most of this city was destroyed, just destroyed by these wildfires that swept through. And it wasn't just the buildings. Uh, reports say hundreds of people, hundreds of people lost their lives in those fires. In fact, from what I've heard, I remember reading a story like a week ago, they're still searching. They're still searching for the, for the bodies of people. That's how, how horrible, terrible these fires were. Some people did escape, though. There were some wonderful stories of people who escaped. Uh, I read about a, a woman named Joanne Hayashi. Joanne Hayashi. Uh, Joanne lived in uh, Lahaina. She, she lived there. And when the fires were kind of on the horizon, some of her neighbors fled. So several of the people who lived around her, they saw the smoke in the distance, and I think there might have been even been some kind of evacuation recommendation. Uh, they got out of there. But, but she stayed. She actually had some cats that she was worried about, and, and she really kind of trusted that they'd get it under control. You know, she, she figured they'll, they'll get it under control. And so she stayed. And then by the time she realized that uh, they were not getting it under control, it was too late. She, she couldn't get out at that point. And so the fire kept getting closer and closer, and eventually her own house. And she was doing all the things you or I would do. She had the hoses going. She was watering down her house, soaking it so that she was trying to prevent the fire. But eventually it got through, and the fire, her, her own house caught fire. And she had to like, basically run out into the street for safety. And uh, when she got out into the street, she ran into a friend of hers. There's this guy named Phil, Phil, Phil Bailey. And he was in the same predicament she was. For his own reasons, he hadn't left either. And now his house was on fire. And so the two of them are standing in the street together. And there's this fire all around them. And, and they kind of looked. And we can't go that way. We can't go that way. We can't go that way. And that's when they, they realized they, there was only, really only one way they could go. And it was into the ocean. 
Now, that was their only, that was their only choice. See, Lahaina is a coastal town. It's right there on the ocean. Lots of docks and boats, and a lot of that all caught fire as well. But, but that was their option. They had the ocean behind them. And so as the fire really just got too, more than they could stand, that's where they went. The two of them waded out into the ocean. And they stayed there for the next seven hours. For the next seven hours. The fires on the shore were so hot they couldn't go back. In fact, the fires were, were so hot that they actually had to kind of sink down into the water just to protect themselves from the heat that was radiating from the shore. Uh, but the water was kind of cold. It is the ocean. And so they would stand up and they'd kind of warm themselves up in the air in front of the fire. But then when that happened, all these embers were flying at them. So they were getting burned as they're, as they're standing there. So they'd kind of go back down into the water and they'd come up again for, for seven plus hours. This was, this was what they did while the fires raged there on the shore. And, and, and it, was, it was exhausting. Actually, it went overnight from, from if I understood their story right. And, and again, they're getting burned. They're cold. They're tired. They're hungry. All of this stuff is going on. But they made it. They both made it. They, they took refuge in the ocean, and the ocean proved to be their salvation. And when I saw that story a few weeks ago, I thought, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our sin is like those fires on the shore, and his sacrifice is like the ocean. And when we do what those two people did, when we take refuge in Jesus, he saves us. He saves us from, from the flames of our own sin and the, the judgment that they deserve. And just, just like that ocean saved those two, those two friends. And so my, my closing word here is take refuge. Take refuge. I think that's the message of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Take refuge in Jesus. Find salvation in him. Flee to him for salvation. And then when you have, don't let go. I remember that big picture theme of, of Hebrews. Don't let go. Hold on. Hold on to Jesus no matter what, because Jesus is worth any sacrifice.